0: My sister, Kate, decided she was going to do something a little risky for her birthday three weeks ago, and so she went skydiving. She was describing the experience to me, and she and her two friends that went with her, they got there early in the morning, even though they didn't know exactly when their group would take off. Well, unfortunately, they were one of the last groups. And so they're just sitting, waiting all day until their group was called. And this brought about major anxiety for her. She's sitting in a room with other groups of people waiting to go jump out of a large flying piece of metal at 18,000 feet above the earth. They had nothing but time to get anxious. The instructors went over the safety precautions, how to breathe, and most important, what to do when you are about to land. It was finally their turn to go. They were ready to be done with the waiting, and the next thing they knew, they were up in the air. It all happened so quickly, and I asked her if she was terrified to jump out, and she quickly said, I didn't have a chance to get that way. She said she was strapped to the instructor. (laughs) You see, Kate was doing a tandem skydive, apparently the world's highest, according to her certificate. And so when the door opened, and he, he just pushed her, and they were out. She said she didn't feel scared. She had someone guiding her, reminding her, even as she hurled at 120 miles per hour, ...that she was going to be okay. Here is the proof that she did it. This is her jump certificate... ...and I want you to note... ...that it says it is the world's highest skydiving ever. I feel like all of us... ...have been sitting in a room... ...some of us alone... ...some with maybe teenagers... Some with little children, some with our spouses, waiting until our name is called. Waiting for more bad news, for another person we know to get the virus, maybe waiting for ourselves to be the ones that get infected. We're worried over when we will get it. Anxiety seems to be building and building within us, around us, and the news media is not helping. So for today, we, your pastors and our musicians, we want you to know that although so much is unknown right now, we have hope. That is something we do know. We have a tandem partner. In Jesus Christ that can cast out all fear and anxiety my mentor Lane Alderman called it the ABCs of hope we have assurance for today based on God's work and faithfulness in the past that will give us confidence for the future and so friends we are going to share stories of hope with you this morning Our spiritual discipline today is to practice hope. We will hope in the fact that the earth is full of the steadfast love of the
1: Lord. So hear these words of the 33rd Psalm. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Praise the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Playing skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice, and the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Amen. The picture you're looking at was taken in 2005, 15 years ago. It was a beautiful house and a beautiful life. The house was full. It was bustling with three teenagers and all their friends and activities My husband, Al, was pastoring a large, growing church, and that church was the center of our world. I was on the faculty of a small liberal arts college. It was life as we expected it to be, our careers and our family growing. We were doing meaningful work and making a difference. This was supposed to be the place we raised up our children and launched them into the world. This was supposed to be the time in our life and in our careers to make the most lasting impact on the church, on our children, on our little corner of the kingdom of God. And then, then the unthinkable happened. Standing up for our family and for what we believe to be right... We made the difficult decision for Al to abruptly resign as the senior pastor of that church. It was a faithful decision. It was a prayerful decision. It was the right decision. And it changed the course of our lives, our children's lives, our careers, and I would dare say our place in the world forever. And that's not a dramatic overstatement, I assure you. I'd be happy to tell you more about it some other time, but not now. This morning, this morning, I just want to share with you a moment my moment, my crisis of hope moment in this whole saga, and how God's faithfulness matters in the middle of such a crisis. It was May 5th, 2006. And the house, my beautiful house, was sold. I had a modest job as an associate pastor lined up. Al was scrambling to get an interim position. The kids were being ripped out of the life they loved. And it was the day before moving day. Al was already in Texas. And the kids and I and some of their friends, we were getting ready for the move. Money was scarce. We couldn't afford to move all our belongings. We were going to a very modest home. So half, only half of our things could go with us. That day, we ran out of time to sell things and give things away. That day, we we rented a truck. And on that driveway of that beautiful house, we began to pile up the belongings that we couldn't take. All of the papers and awards and art projects that I've collected of the kids over the years, they were on that driveway. Documents and clothing, furniture, kitchen gadgets, they were on that driveway. Costumes and toys and knickknacks on that driveway. And that window that you see in the picture... That was a huge second-story bonus room. We literally opened that window and threw things onto the driveway to be taken to the dump. And when we're done, the pile stood taller than I am, over five feet tall. If you look real closely at this picture, you see there's a tiny white door, a side door to the right of the driveway, and it has a tiny little stoop. And that's where I had my moment, my crisis of hope moment. I gave the kids some money for fast food and they left and there I sat on that stoop looking at that pile of stuff, looking at my former hopes, my former dreams, all gone, all changed. And I'm not embarrassed to tell you that at that point I wept. Not because I cared about losing my things. I knew they were just possessions. I knew they were just baggage, really. No, I wept because life as I knew it, as I had planned for it, it was done. I wept because somehow, some way, I had to get up off that stoop and I had to move forward. And I wept because I wasn't sure. Literally wasn't sure I had the faith or the hope or the love to do it. Sing to God a new song, says the psalmist. God loves righteousness and justice, and the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Friends, in my moment of crisis, when hope seemed so foreign, God did an amazing thing in my heart. Because as I looked at that pile in my driveway, suddenly, That pile became tiny signs of God's faithfulness, God's love and mercy for me and my family. Tiny examples of God's grace for us through the years. In that pile, I saw gifts undeserved from family members, from church members, from friends, from coaches, teachers, colleagues, and neighbors. In that pile, I saw experiences of love and learning that would always be a part of who I am, a part of what my family values. Sing to God a new song. God loves righteousness and justice, and the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. So I got up off the stoop, (laughs) and I began to learn to sing a new song. I began to learn to leave the injustice, the unfairness of the situation in God's hands, and then to lean into God's faithfulness and steady grace. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. The new song, it wasn't very melodic at first. Certainly didn't sound like Courtney did a few minutes ago. It wasn't very loud at first, Things didn't instantly get better. In fact, many things got much worse. But when hope is scarce in my life, when things get out of control, when my expectations are dashed, and when I want to despair, I know what I am called to do. I know what we are called to do. I know what people of faith People who've experienced God's power and protection, God's blessing in the past, are called to do. We are called to sing a new song. We're called to get up off the stoop of anxiety and worry, fear and dread, and sing hope into the world. My shabby little song of hope eventually led me to a life that I cherish very much. A life I never would have imagined as a younger woman, a life I actually get to share with you. This is our moment, my friends. This is the time to sing to God a new song. And it doesn't have to be operatic or grand. It doesn't have to sound like Emily Craven or Jeff Kaiser. It most certainly will not be perfect. But it begins, it begins with celebrating God's faithfulness to us in the past and our confidence in God's faithfulness, even in moments of crisis and doubt. Sing to God a new song. God loves righteousness and justice, and the earth is full of God's steadfast love. Amen.
2: I'm continuing to read Psalm 33, beginning at the sixth verse. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all their host by the breath of his mouth. He gathered the waters of the sea as in a bottle. He put the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Truly, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. When I hear these words, I'm reminded how ancient people found a lot of assurance. In the natural world, they found comfort in what they saw as a created order that operated all around them without their help, but they understood very little of what they saw, at least by modern standards. They could see the host of heaven, the sun, and the moon, and the stars, but they knew nothing about nuclear fusion or gravitational pull. They could see that some water flowed down on the earth while other water fell from the sky. They figured that God had just carried some of the water down below up into heaven where he kept it in storehouses. And every now and then, God just broke one of those storehouses open and rain fell down on the earth. Ancient people did not know about the water cycle. They knew what they saw and they knew God and they put the two of those things together and life made sense. They found assurance. I think it is harder for us to find assurance in the observable world. We know too much. We know how it works and we also know how it can go wrong. We know how tectonic plates rub together and make an earthquake We know how lightning strikes and we know how a virus spreads. Knowing these facts empowers us, but it can also overwhelm us, especially as Pastor Emily pointed out, especially when we ask ourselves to process all of this information, knowledge, all we can see and hear and know every waking hour on the news and in conversation with one another. That gets overwhelming. So sometimes I envy the people of the past. Where we see chaos, they were able to see mystery. And where we have lots of explanations, they knew how to tell stories. And when it comes to hope, a good story is better than an explanation. It is stories. It is stories more than anything else that carry hope, from generation to generation. So I've been thinking about stories, and I've been thinking about the stories of hope that my family carries on. I've been thinking especially about my grandparents, my grandmama and papa. Both of them have died and gone to join the church triumphant, but I can still count on my mother to tell me their stories. So I called her this week, she told me the story of how my grandmother got sick with scarlet fever when she was seven years old. At the time, it was a leading cause of death for children. Penicillin had not been discovered yet. So my grandmother was very sick. And as the story goes, she had to stay inside for a whole year. Lately, I've been better able to imagine that. Happily, that's not the end of the story. My grandmother got well. She grew up, she went to college, and then World War II came. But right in the midst of it, she fell in love. A thrilling story. She and my grandfather only met five times in person before they got married. Mostly they wrote letters, but they fell in love that way. And when she came down from North Carolina to visit him in Baton Rouge where he was working in the spring of 1945, they sat side by side on the levee and they talked for hours until my grandfather reached down and picked up a blade of grass from where they were sitting and tied it into a ring. It was a gesture of love, but it was also a bold gesture of hope in a very uncertain time. I love that story of them. But what I love most and remember best is the story of their first year of marriage. They were living in Boston, and then my grandmother got sick again, and this time it was with rheumatoid arthritis. She was only in her mid-20s, And her body was attacking itself. That's how rheumatoid arthritis works. Your immune system attacks its own tissue, including, of course, the joints. There was no cure. There still isn't. And at the time, her doctor's only suggestion was bed rest. And so, for months, this young woman lay in bed. She lay in pain and in despair. And she was losing hope. But that's not the end of the story either. The story goes that her father, my great-grandfather, who was a Methodist minister, came to her bedside. He was a gentle man, and he came with that gentleness and wisdom, and he prayed for her. And then he said, Daughter, you have a choice. You can lie here for the rest of your life, or you can get up and live your life. You have a choice. And she got up, and through the pain and fatigue that she would experience for the rest of her life, still she set out to live. And this was a determination and a courage and a hope that she and my grandfather shared through the years. There are many more stories I could tell you. But really, that's not the point. None of my stories are so special. These people in my family were not more virtuous than others, their lives were not harder, their challenges were not greater. These are simply my stories. And the good news is that you have your own. The thing about stories of hope is that everyone has them. We practice hope when we tell them to each other, when we remember what God has done for us and for those who went before. From the big picture of the cosmos to the little stories of our lives, God is present and God is powerful. We can hope. In God's steadfast love. Amen.
0: We continue reading from Psalm 33. Our soul waits for the Lord, He is our help and shield. Our heart is glad in Him because we trust in His holy name. Let your steadfast love, O oh Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. The first time that I was pregnant, it was a little bit rough. I had all day sickness, not morning and all throughout, not just the first trimester. But when our first child, Logan, was born, everything changed. He was the easiest baby. Now, we were overachieving parents and read that book, Baby Wise, that kind of guarantees that your child will sleep through the night at 12 weeks. Well, he did. And my family made so much fun of me and poked and prodded at us as how I was so serious about the sleep schedule, but it worked. I remember someone saying, oh, that's a trick baby. Cause he ate well, he slept well, he played well. The trick you, they trick you into thinking that all babies will be like them. And, and so we decided to go ahead and, and to try for number two. Um, I mean, we were dominating at this parenting thing anyway. And so when Logan was eight months old, we got pregnant again. Everything was so different. I wasn't just nauseous. I threw up every day, all day. I remember throwing up so hard all the time that all of the little capillaries in my face would pop. And so I would go to work and be covered in blotches. And then I also had this toddler to take care of and work full time I began to sleep all the time. Every time Logan would take a nap, I would take a nap. And when he would go to bed at 6 or 7 at night, I went to bed as well. The holidays approached, and, and I just remember not being excited about them at all. I went to my parents in Tampa, Florida for Thanksgiving. And usually when I am around my family, my sisters, Those are the best times of my year. And I looked back to see if I had any pictures during that time. There weren't any. I take pictures of everything, but I guess I wasn't up to taking pictures. I remember it was just after Christmas, and I had willed myself to take Logan on a walk in the stroller I came back and I tried to put him down for a nap, but of course on this day when I really needed him to, he wouldn't. But I had to get in the shower to get ready because I had my OB checkup appointment that afternoon. So I took him into the master bathroom and I put him inside the bathtub with no water and I filled it with toys. And then I got in the shower and I was able to see him through the clear glass. And as I am showering in that moment, I begin to weep. And it hits me in that moment. I don't want to do this. I don't want to be pregnant again. I definitely don't want to have to take care of that baby. And I don't want to have to take care of another baby. Let alone. I don't want to take care of myself. I, in that moment didn't want to live anymore. And I'm weeping, and then I look up, and then there is Logan just staring at me, peeping over the bathtub. He'd never seen me cry. I'd never seen me cry like that. It was providential that I happened to have that OB appointment that afternoon because y'all need to realize that my OB doctor, Dr. Hirsch, this precious, precious Jewish man. I believe I was his favorite patient. And he was definitely my favorite. And so any time that I went to visit Dr. Hirsch, my spirits would be lifted. So I get us into the car, I go to the appointment, and I get into the room, and shocking to me, I begin to cry again. And I say to him, I can't do this. I don't I don't think I want to have this baby. I don't think I can do this anymore. And he just listened. He didn't judge me. He didn't say, you know, I'm worried about how you're parenting. He didn't do anything that made me feel less than. He listened. And then he put his hand on my knee and he said, I think you have partum depression, Emily. And you need to know there is hope. Because there is medicine that I can give you to help you get through this. I am here to tell you, those times when life is too much, which let's be honest, it has been a little bit too much the past week, I am reminded of how God used that precious obstetrician, Dr. Hirsch, to remind me that I will get through. You see, I am assured of God's hope today because I know God has taken care of me in the past, especially when I couldn't do it myself. And so I can have confidence for the future. The Hebrew word for hope that is used in that verse 22, it's most often translated as wait. To hope in the Lord means to wait in the Lord because hoping is not in our timetable. To hope in the Lord is to trust in God's timetable. Hoping is trusting in God's steadfast love that does not ever end, does not ever disappoint. Friends, our hope this day is in God, a God who is always faithful. Let us practice hope today. Amen.